This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you, as always. By the way, join us during the week. Fox Business Network, FBN, named the show's Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. We have a lot of fun covering all the news. Can't get there at 4 for some crazy reason. You could text your favorite uh, nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show so you won't miss a thing. Not a single thing. And right here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. Runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. So, New Hampshire primary Tuesday, the uh, latest tracking poll Trump 52, Haley 35, 17 points. So that hasn't changed. This is the uh, Boston Globe, blah, 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 tracking poll. supposed to be pretty good. I'm watching uh, on Fox uh, News, I'm watching uh, Governor Chris Sununu being interviewed. You know, Sununu, I hate to say this because I don't like to to speak ill I of anybody personally. I, I'm a policy guy. Uh, I like to stay on the issues. But Sununu, I've, I've heard some of his uh, campaign rhetoric about Donald Trump's failures on the economy and inflation and the border. I mean, just flat-out lies. I'm sorry, Chris. Flat-out lies. And I just say this because I don't want him, if he ever hears about this or listens to it, and I've said the same thing on my own show, and I've said it on other Fox shows. He's just lying about Trump's. Trump had a superb record. That's the reason he's so far ahead in the polls. And Chris Sununu made a bad bet going with uh, with uh, Haley. Very, very bad bet. Trump said, let's see, one of the rallies, I think, yesterday, the day before, Trump said, because Chris Sununu has done so badly and because Haley's doing so badly, Sununu will be unelectable for future office. I don't know that that's the case, but he's going to hurt himself for this. Now Sununu is saying Haley's going to finish second. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, she'll finish second. It doesn't do a thing. You know, you don't win when you finish second. Uh, a few days ago, and certainly pre-Iowa, where Trump won uh, 98 out of 99 counties with about a 35-point lead. He lost one county by one vote, which I sort of doubt happened, but whatever, I'm not going to go there. Uh, before Iowa, Sununu was saying how Haley was going to win. She's not going to win. She's going to lose. 
And as you probably read in the papers this morning or last night, Governor, I mean, uh, Senator Tim Scott uh, endorsed Trump. Now, what makes that meaningful is this is Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, which is Nikki Haley's home state. And she can't, she'll get, she's going to get slaughtered in South Carolina if she stays up. I mean, I don't know how she can do it. She have no vote. The Nevada caucuses come next. I mean, Trump's going to win that 95 to 0 or something. And then they get to South Carolina. I don't know what the dates are. Maybe Kevin can find the date for the South Carolina primary and the Nevada caucus. But, you know, Haley should have dropped out after Iowa. DeSantis should have dropped out after Iowa, and they both should have endorsed President Trump, former President Trump. Unify the party and stop all this last-minute slings and arrows. It's unbecoming. And don't lie. All right, Sununu, if you, if, you, if you don't like Trump, okay. But don't lie about his record. And one of the most powerful things I want to say about former President Trump is in the general election, which has really started, it's really started now, Trump has run a general election campaign. But my point is we had a very strong economy. We had low energy and oil prices, in part because of Trump policies, in large part because of Trump policies. You know, Joe Biden is out there. He is still trashing the Trump tax cuts and giveaways to the rich. Nikki Haley says the same thing. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. That is just not true. Factually, it is not true. It's class warfare, left-wing class warfare. Nikki Haley's been using it, and, of course, Joe Biden always uses it. The reality is... The Trump tax cuts, which lowered the unemployment rate to 3.5%, which at the time was a world record, the lowest unemployment rates for African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, and women. Following the Trump tax cuts, there were corporate tax cuts, there were small business tax cuts, and they were individual, personal tax cuts. And a recent study, a blue-chip study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, it's blue-chip stuff, from economists from the U.S. Treasury, University of Chicago, Princeton, and Harvard, all right? They did a study that not only showed that the Trump tax cuts boosted business investment, which is the heart of the economy, boosted productivity, which is what makes the economy grow and holds down inflation, and boosted real worker wages. This is from this blue-chip study. Harvard, Princeton, Chicago, God help us, U.S. Treasury. So... Here's uh, Sununu out there telling us it didn't work and Haley saying it didn't work. Of course it worked. And Biden always lies about it. Biden is incapable of telling the truth. 
about the economy. Incapable. And we did the work on this. Yes, I worked for Trump. I, I was a director of the National Economic Council. Proud of it. Proud of working. I worked on those tax cuts during the Trump campaign in 2015-16. And um, when they looked at the results, we looked at the results, and the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Federal Reserve Board, blah, blah, blah. Kevin Hassett looked at it. Tyler Goodspeed looked at it. And the biggest winners in the Trump tax cuts, the biggest winners in terms of percentage change, growth, how much did your wages grow? Okay. Middle-income people had the best performance of any of the income quintiles. There are five quintiles. Middles, And you know what? The bottom quintiles, not just the third quintile in the middle, but the fourth and fifth quintiles, the low-income workers, had the biggest percentage increase in income following the Trump tax cuts. And as far as the richest are concerned, and by the way, I have nothing against rich people. I want to make the non-rich rich. You know, the rich people, the economic activists, the risk takers, God bless them. I'm not a warrior, class warrior, but I'm just saying they had a somewhat smaller percentage gain. The reason for that was we took away uh, bad tax policy. We made a reform to limit the deduction for state and local uh, taxes. You know, state and local, like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, outrageous property taxes, income taxes. We took it down to $10,000. It was unlimited. Frankly, it should be eliminated altogether because all that federal break does is it encourages these left-wing states to keep jacking up taxes and ruining their economies. And the wealthy people, many of whom, I want to say most of whom nowadays are Democrats, are still screaming and bellyaching about that. And I think when they get around to the next round of reforms, after Trump wins, he's going to want to make everything permanent. We should remove that thing entirely. That's the deduction. Remove it entirely. You want a clean tax system, flat tax, lower the rates, flatten the rates, right? Get rid of all the deductions and credits that clutter up the tax code. Simplify the code. Flat tax, simplify the code. That's what we aimed for in the Trump years. We made great progress, bringing the top corporate rate down to 21%, bringing the individual rate to 37 All those brackets we brought down by three percentage points, and we widened the bracket so it would be harder to, to fall or to rise to a higher bracket. And, of course, it's all indexed for inflation. By the way, ACE, producer... Kevin Drosh, Nevada caucus, February 8th. When's that, Kevin? That's a couple weeks. Today's the uh, 20th. Today's the 20th, so the primary is on the 20, let's see, 21, 20, so it's 23rd. February's, all right, New Hampshire's the 23rd. And then eh, basically two weeks later comes the Nevada caucus. 
And then a couple weeks after that, February 24th, South Carolina primary. Good research, Kevin. All right. My point is the Trump tax cuts worked. Minority groups never had it better. The whole income scale, but most of all, working folks in the middle and lower incomes, they were the biggest beneficiaries. And Trump had tremendous deregulation. For every new regulation, he cut seven. (laughs) Biden has had uh, $2 trillion of new federal regulations. $2 trillion. It's outrageous, strangling the economy. And, of course, all of that, including Biden's overspending and big mistakes by the Fed, created a huge inflation. Now, Biden is bragging about how the inflation rate has come down. Okay, he's right. The inflation rate has come down. If I were president, I would be bragging about that, too. The catch is, though, the problem is affordability in the Biden economy has not improved because the lingering effects of the inflation, individual prices like grocery prices up 20 percent, energy prices. Sure, gasoline has come down, but it's still uh, well over a dollar higher than it was uh, three, four years ago. Energy prices are still up about 30 percent plus. Car prices up about 20 percent plus. Electricity is up over 20 percent. The lingering, so the aggregate inflation rate has come down against year ago. Yes, absolutely. And that may be boosting the stock market. Yes, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not going to lie about that. I, I kid about the stock market. One of the left wing media companies got on my case. I saw in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, internet, but, uh, Trump said that the market's going up because it knows he's going to win. Other people say the market's going up because uh, they know Biden's going to lose. It should be the same thing. I don't know, folks. The markets, my view is the market's going up because the Fed stopped raising rates. They're not going to cut them anytime soon. We'll talk about that on the show plenty. But the main thing is the tech stocks, the technology stocks, the uh, AI stocks, the new you know, advanced quantum computing stocks. And the application of those new technology advances, which is very good for our economy. By the way, the Bidens are trying to strangle that. The Bidens are trying to strangle that with overregulation. But I'm just saying at the moment, they haven't gotten their eggs through. So that's what's driving the stock market. Big tech rally. And I'm all for it. I'm all for it. The Kudlow Trusts are doing well. But don't lie about Trump's record. In this campaign coming up, Mr. Trump will ask again and again, and he'll certainly ask it in the debates, Are you better off today than you were four years ago? And judging from poll after poll after poll, Biden's uh, economic approval is so low, it's in the 20s. And people will say, no, we are worse off. And that is because of Biden inflation and Biden spending and uh, Biden uh, attack on fossil fuels, the war against fossil fuels, which Trump calls liquid gold. We are producing fossil fuels because the price is so high, $80, $70, $80 got as high as $120. But it's the same level it was pre-pandemic, 13, uh, I don't know, 13.1 million barrels a day, some such. We should be at 15 or 16 million barrels a day four years later. That made any progress. Why? Because Biden has stifled that sector. 
He'll stifle the AI sector, too. You'll wait and see. So don't. And inflation under Trump, Zippo, less than 2%. So don't, you know, Chris Sununu, don't say Trump failed on inflation and the economy and taxes and regulations and drilled baby drill and the border and the border. When Trump negotiated with Mexico to make sure people seeking asylum had to remain in Mexico first while these asylum decisions and parole decisions were made, that was Trump's doing. And he told Obrador, AMLO, the president, who's a professional politician, he's a man of the left, he's a socialist, but nonetheless, Mexico said no. Trump said, fine, you didn't want to do it? We are going to double and triple your tariffs. You will not be able to sell automobiles in the United States or any manufacturing in the United States. He used the tariffs. Mexico folded and put 25,000-some-odd troops on the border. Okay? That's the way you run a presidency, not open borders with 7 or 8 million illegals circulating through the interior of the country, with declining law and order, with real wages falling, with drugs prevalent with gangs running the border. Incredible. This was Trump's doing. He did a great job. So Sununu and these other people must not lie. They, I'm not going to let them lie. I, voters are too smart. You know, they're going to say Nikki Haley's going to win because independents are going to vote for her, Democratic leaning in. We'll see. Right now the polling shows are losing 52-35 in New Hampshire. Wouldn't be surprised if that polling widened in Trump's favor. Because a lot of people know that Trump was right on the economy, he was right on the border, and he was right about a tough foreign policy. And I might add a tough trade policy with China and others. So, that's why the numbers show a big win. All right, we take a break. They're yelling at me. I went too long, like I always do. We're going to have some... Political discussions. We have our great panel with Mark Simone and uh, Joe Concha coming up at the half hour. We'll take a good look at the economy and the Federal Reserve later in the show. We're going to take a good look at the, uh, I don't know, mischief in the Middle East. That thing looks like it's blowing up. And, of course, we'll do some stock market work and money and politics. I'm Cudlow. It's great to be here, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, I've only got 20 seconds, they tell me. So stick around, folks. Mark Simone and Joe Concha are going to work with me on politics. One theme we're going to do, one theme we're going to do is the unity theme that President Trump has put on the table. Unity. Unity in the Republican Party and unity throughout the United States. Success breeds unity, an important Trump theme. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. So we've got my pal Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Trying to uh, trying to track down Joe Concha, but we'll just talk to Mark uh, for a while. First of all, Mark, good morning. Thank you, buddy. And um, let's see, New Hampshire, the tracking poll, Boston Globe, 52, Trump, 35, uh, Haley. You know, I just wondered, uh, there's so much in the paper, the front page of the Wall Street Journal, blah, 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 uh, other publications. The Wall Street Journal newsroom is probably just as bad as the other newsrooms, but putting that aside, um, Trump is going to do even better than 52, 35. I mean, this business about um, left-leaning independents and Democrats for Haley, you know, the, I, my view is the more you see her, the less you like her. And um, this whole thing is this phony buildup uh, from the media. She's not going to do well in New Hampshire. She's going to underperform. What do you think? No, absolutely. You know, he was so far ahead in uh, Iowa that they think it suppressed some of his vote. A lot of people, it was so cold, Mm. didn't want to come out. They knew he absolutely was going to win. In this case, she keeps pushing that it's close, and that's going to bring out even more of his voters. Just that might get him another uh, couple of percent. Uh, He's going to win this. She she points to that freaky outlier poll where she was uh, tied with him. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, She she definitely is going to lose here, no matter what happens here. Because independence and everybody can vote here, it's it's not a good barometer. Once they get to South Carolina, she's absolutely finished. That's the end of her race. And uh, DeSantis, once they get to Florida, where he's 30, 40 points behind, that's the end of him. So it's it's pretty much over. I, I, I guess this is just good to go through this for the next few weeks anyway. gives us something to talk about. Well, I know. And we, we had a great panel on the TV show last night. But, you know... Um... So Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, we didn't really talk about it on the panel last night, or maybe we did. I don't remember. But so he's endorsed Trump and he's campaigning for Trump. I mean, she's dead in South Carolina. So this is it. I mean, it's all over but the shouting. (laughs) It's all over but the crying. I don't know. Yeah. And also last week, she went into just attack Trump, attack Trump, attack Trump. I don't know if she ever heard of Chris Christie. But I think he kind of proved that playbook isn't good. Doesn't, doesn't do anything for you. And you're not going to vote against somebody. You're only going to show up and code through the snow and freezing temperatures of Iowa and New Hampshire if you're for something. And I, I still don't know what she's for. I, I don't know exactly what she represents, why I'm supposed to vote for her. Well, I think that's a good point. I don't think she ever established a real argument. Uh, I, I think the. You know, I was, again, reading about in the paper this morning, you don't want another 80-year-old guy. Well, first of all, Trump is not 80, 77, and he's a very energetic, in good health, 77. Uh, but she says that all the time. We don't want another 80-year-old guy. Uh, then she said, then Sununu, Chris Sununu, who ought to know better. I know this guy, the governor. He's basically out there lying about Trump's record, telling people, Trump failed on the economy, failed on the border, and failed foreign policy. I mean, I heard that. I first heard that. I think it was uh, Trey Gowdy's Sunday night show. Judy and I were driving down from Connecticut back to the city. I, I couldn't believe my ears. Just a pack of lies, Mark Simone. You know, look, he wants to be for Haley, fine. 
But don't lie about Trump's record. That's what Joe Biden does. And it infuriates me. It, it infuses politics that are so, you know, low and dirty and um, debilitating and uh, confidence uh, uh, confidence withdrawing. And I just don't like that. I mean, I, be for Haley, fine, but don't lie. Well, but even DeSantis did it. Uh, Trump didn't want to do the debate. So DeSantis, for a couple of days, was saying Trump is running a basement campaign uh, as oh, if he's hiding in a basement. This is right. a guy who showed up in New York for his trial, flew to Florida for a funeral, flew to Iowa. I mean, he's in three states often in one day. Uh, if you have to start lying, that's when you know you're really, really in trouble. Mm-hmm. I also notice uh, Haley, they've cut down drastically on the number of events this week. And the few events she went to, they would not allow any questions. Mm. That's when you know you're in real trouble. I, I also, DeSantis has gotten rid of most of his staff. He's down to just a couple of people. Haley, the same thing. She's got the, just a couple of people on that campaign. And that's it right now. I didn't know she cut down on her appearances. Yeah. Uh, one scheduler. Uh, it, it doesn't look good at all for either. I, I didn't even, the fact that they, they can't debate uh, Haley, and DeSantis won't debate without Trump. Mm. I think they know they're kind of useless. It's embarrassing to get the low ratings in the debate. They don't want to do it anymore. Once the donors be got, got behind her, it's the same path as mm. uh, <laughs> as with DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway's dictum. The donors are always wrong. And she that dictum proved to be correct once again. I mean, it's funny. The donors, God bless them. Wealthy, successful people in business, but they didn't make their money giving political advice. They made their money, you know, in some business. So why would we think they have any wisdom? That's hilarious. The other thing, no, well, <laughs> oh, Warren, Buffett is, Warren Buffett's a genius, but I wouldn't ask him to make my football picks for this weekend. <laughs> I don't think he knows anything about it. And I wouldn't ask him to pick political candidates either. You wouldn't ask him to manage your New Hampshire campaign. No. <laughs> he wouldn't want him to do that. I know. It's just something people uh, don't get. Folks, we're talking to the great Mark Simone, Hall of Fame, the second most listened to guy in the whole country. Well, no, actually, that was the uh, second best midday show. But uh, I lost to these guys in Los Angeles been on 30, 40 years. Oh. It's their final year. So they won for sentimental reasons. All right. I was in for a good spin. That's great. And you'll take it over in number one spot. Uh <laughs> And, folks, I've known Mark a very long time, and he has helped me on radio and TV and every other darn thing. Mark, we were talking yesterday with uh, – I, I don't know what happened to Concha. It's not around, but um, this is more fun. We were talking yesterday with with um, with uh, Charlie Hurt and Rich Lowry and you. Uh, this theme – and I'm really playing this up – this theme that Trump is establishing – to unify the Republican Party, but to unify the country and to do it through successful policies, economic policies, closing border policies, um, peace through strength, foreign policies. Success is the best revenge, but success is a unifier. And he's, you know, adopted this point of view. He started in Iowa and he's expanded it uh, as he campaigns in um, New Hampshire. You know, Mark, I think this is very effective, and it raises another point. Joe Biden has been one of the meanest, nastiest, most divisive presidents in recent memory. So, Trump, you know, Trump's going to turn the tables on him. 
Yeah, those uh, speeches, the one in Philadelphia, the one in Valley Forge, those were two of the ugliest speeches. You can't find anything from any other president as mm. ugly as those Biden speeches. And uh, Trump has been, as you've been saying, sticking to the issues, and he's very strong on the issues. And if Biden could go after him on the issues, mm. that would be uh, trouble. But Biden can't do it, so he's going after him with the same tired old lies as you pointed out uh, he's you know tax cuts for the rich it's yeah. absolutely not true mm-hmm. but if you've got to resort to that old play from the worn out old playbook of lying that's where you know the democrats can't do this on issues uh so they're going to do it on character they're going to try to you know 91 indictments nobody mm-hmm. can understand what any of them are none, none of them make any sense uh, the fact that they're down to that this early means they're in real trouble usually you wait for that october surprise They've gone after this guy so hard. There's nothing they can do to him in October. This mm. is, it's impossible. What do you think uh, of the unity message? What do you think of that? Well, Trump is the only one that can pull that off. As you say, Biden, you, you can't even picture mm. Joe Biden admitting that he was wrong. You can't picture Joe Biden even saying, you know, I guess Trump is right about this. It, it couldn't come out of his mouth. He couldn't physically say it. But mm. I can picture Trump doing that. There's this old myth I hear the uh, Trump haters always say, he can't admit when he's wrong. He can't admit mistakes. Just for the heck of it, I Googled it the other day. Trump admits mistakes. Huh. About 75 different examples came up of him really? when he was wrong. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, during during the pandemic, a few times he admitted we were wrong about this. I was wrong about that. Uh, huh. Yeah, But I, I can't imagine Joe Biden ever saying that. Uh, I, I still don't think Joe Biden will be the candidate. I think we're looking at a recreation of 1968 here. Hmm. And uh, that year, Lyndon Johnson dropped out of the race, but it wasn't until the end of March. That's when he dropped out. Then they went to primaries. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy jumped in. McCarthy. I think you'll see that happen this year. Well, there was a story in the paper today. Um, Dean Phillips, the Minnesota congressman, comes from a wealthy family, and he was the CEO of a company. So he's just put $5 million bucks into his campaign in New Hampshire. So he will be on the ballot in New Hampshire, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't followed this. Biden's going to have to have write-in votes. So you think there's we're overlooking a potential story there? In other yeah. words, Phillips, you don't vote for Phillips because he's Phillips, Minnesota congressman, and rather obscure. You vote for him as a protest against Biden. Is that possible, Mark Simone? Absolutely. And, and expect uh, Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr. in New Hampshire. And he uh, the Kennedys are beloved in New Hampshire. Is don't he on the ballot? Well Is RFK on the ballot? I, I don't think he got on the ballot, but uh, they'll, if they're going to write in somebody, uh, they'll write in him. Huh. He's a very popular figure in New Hampshire. You know, we, I got to talk about that on the TV thing on Monday. I haven't really I've kind of overlooked those possibility the phillips thing uh i think that again the wall street journal i think it was a news item he put five million into his campaign and you know the other thing mark is uh so what biden forced the florida primary to end and then uh i think the north carolina primary uh i think they've stopped that too or kept or made it so hard to register for it for a candidate this is you know biden's the candidate of democracy, Mark, except he doesn't want democracy in his own party and he doesn't want democracy in 
on the ballot for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he's for democracy, yet he's arresting his political opponent over and over and over again. Huh. Stalin would be proud of this. He would be. You, you know what? You're absolutely Stalin. He wouldn't turn over in his grave. He'd sit up in his grave and say, nice work, Joe Biden. Yeah. This is the only president ever to have a guy arrested for having classified documents while he has a garage filled with classified documents. Uh, I'm sure this effort to throw his name off the uh, ballot in certain states, I'm sure that's coordinated. This uh, Fannie Willis uh, case in Georgia, we we know that they've been meeting with the White House, long meetings. So it's all coordinated. And don't be surprised if something doesn't come out in the next few months. If right. they if they want to get rid of Joe Biden, they'll just let this all leak out that that's, he was coordinating this. I want to talk about this and Fannie Willis and uh, Hunter Biden and uh, all the rest of it. Let's save that. We'll take a quick break here. Folks, we're talking to the great Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., dear friend of mine. Um, I don't know. We may or may not find conscious. Simone's the best of the best anyway. I don't want to dilute it. It's just too good to be true. I'm Cudlow, and we'll be right back with more politics. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host at 710 WOR, weekdays 10 a.m., 12 p.m. And Oh, wait a minute. Look at the cat dragged in. We finally found Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor and author of Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Horrible Presidency. Well, Joe, very kind of you to drop by and... I know you heard Mark, who was so insightful and brilliant, you decided you got to get on the phone. You must get on the phone. Hello? Did we, lo- did we lose him? We, lo- <laughs> we lost him again. See that? This is Simone. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> and I thought I would be the oh. one to oversleep. <laughs> no. You, you guys ever see the end of The Shining? I was basically Jack Nicholson outside. I was flooding with my kids before, and I was too frozen to, to reach for the phone. So oh. my apologies for that. All, right. All good. What are we talking about? So why um, why doesn't uh, both Haley and DeSantis just drop out? Trump has called for unity, and he means it. He called for it in Iowa. He said it again in New Hampshire. Now, he's going to make a unity theme for the country in the general election, which I think is very cool. But right now, in terms of the GOP primary, Tim Scott came over. Uh, which, you know, I mean, South Carolina, both senators and the governor uh, are for Trump, not Haley. She has no no chance there. Neither does DeSantis. It's the same story in Florida. Uh, Marco Rubio, right, just endorsed him. Rick Scott endorsed him. Um, I'm having a cup of coffee with Rick here in town on Monday. He's a smart guy. Anyway, the point is, why don't they just drop out and say, okay, we made, you know, we ran, we made a few points, uh, but we agree with him about unity. And then they might have political careers in the future. The way they're going, they're ruining their political careers, Joe Concha. Well, I'll I'll say this. After 2016 in Iowa, Ted Cruz was the winner. And no one was saying, all right, we all have to uh, coalesce around Ted Cruz. Now, I know that wasn't the margin that Trump won by. Mm. But if you're Haley and DeSantis and you've been running for the past 10 months, almost every day, right, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, Nevada, all these states, you're doing all these interviews. And just to give up after one caucus 
I, I think that would be a lot. Right now, after New Hampshire, if <clears throat> Haley loses by double digits and DeSantis is going to lose by 45, 50 points because he's only at like 4 or 5%, then I think they should drop out if that ends up being the result. If Haley ends up being competitive or even wins it, well, should she have dropped out before New Hampshire? No. So I, I think eventually they'll all coalesce behind Trump. I think that happens after New Hampshire, but I think to expect them just to say, all right, one contest, we're done, we're behind him, but, there's no shame in waiting one more week to do that. No, no, Joe, I agree. I'm saying after New Hampshire, I mean, the tracking poll, uh, the Boston Globe tracking poll is supposed to be the poll, 52-35. Yeah. And she's, not, it, she's peaked. Her numbers have peaked, and probably that was because of the Iowa blowout and other reasons. This, you know, this independent, democratic-leaning, democratic voters thing is not going to pan out for her. So, yes, okay, go through it. Tuesday is the election. I got it. Uh, Trump win. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, I've been in in and out of politics for a long time. They have to live with Trump if he's president. And and right now the odds are better than 50-50. So he's the leader of his party and be the president you got Governor of Florida. Now, Haley doesn't have a position. I get that. But still, you, you're reading yourself out of politics if you keep up, you know, uh, ankle-biting Trump. I mean, she said, Haley, Mark Simone, Haley said, was it yesterday or the day before? I won't be vice president. It was, it was like, you know what? It was a temper tantrum. That's what that was. It was like a little kid saying, you know, give me, give me my pencil back or some damn thing. You can see it. I mean, what the uh, hell good is it going to do her? Where is she going to go? All these boards of directors she served on, you know, military industrial complex, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to hire her if she gets excommunicated from the Republican Party. No, I, listen, if you're looking for somebody to be gracious, I think uh, Haley and uh, DeSantis would not be your first choice. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess uh, I know. How about uh, Burgum? Look what Burgum did. I had him on the show last night. He's a terribly smart guy. He drops out of the race. He's very gracious, endorses Trump. Look at okay, Joe Concha. Let's go yeah. here. Um, you know Vivek Ramaswamy. I had him on the show, the TV. I don't know this past week. Uh, you know he fought like a tiger. He's a very sharp tongue guy, but he sees the handwriting on the wall, so he pu- you know puts his campaign on pause and um, backs Trump and campaigns with him. Like, that's a classy move. He has a political future, Joe. He has a future with the Trump administration if Trump wins, right? I I think that's ultimately the play. I don't think it's vice president. But Tim Scott, I find him very interesting. Uh, You know, he endorsed Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump never went after him. And Trump can go after anybody in any way, shape, or form. I'm starting to see him as the VP pick, guys. I really am. I think he, he... really is he brings optimism and i think we talked about this on the show guys that optimism wins elections shining city on a hill thousand points of light hope hope and change make america great again and i think tim scott brings that sort of brand he brings a little stability to the chaos that kind of surrounds trump or at least follows trump mm. so I, I i that's my pick right now and uh, we could save the tape as they say well look at yeah. he, he, i know him uh pretty well he's a wonderful human being oh yeah and you know mark and he's uh He's a uh, in my line of work. He's a tax cutting supply side pro growth guy. But you remember he took on Biden. Was it 2021 that he gave the counter State of the Union? And that was a speech. Right. It it was a brilliant speech. I mean, most of those things fall flat on their face. He gave a hell of a response. You know, and he's an up from poverty type guy. 
and he's a wonderful human being. So I know Concha may have had one uh, right on this, Mark. Well, it's possible. I know uh, about a year ago he was Trump's VP pick. That's who he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, And he's a great guy. He's got a hell of a future. But in the debates, he was a little shaky, maybe not ready for prime time. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that brought him down the list a little. But he could rise back to the top of that list. He's absolutely going to be in the cabinet, as uh, Vivek Ramaswamy will mm-hmm. be. Nikki Haley knows she's not ever mm-hmm. going to be in that cabinet, so that's why she's distancing herself. I don't think DeSantis wants to be in the cabinet. I think he wants to stay in Florida, and he should. He's a great governor there. Well, I agree. Uh, would you love to see love to see Tim Scott versus Kamala Harris in a VP debate? I'd pay for that. Oh. No question. See, now that we've finally found you in the interior of New Jersey, you're <laughs> making some very good points. I mean, it's a pleasure to have both of you. Joe Kai. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Messenger. His book is Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Presidency, and Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Thanks, guys. I'm Kudlow. We're going to come back, take a little break, and we're going to talk about the economy. The economy is better than you think, and interest rates are not going to fall, and we'll hear about it from Breitbart's John Carney. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. By the way, during the week, please join us. Fox Business Network, FBN TV. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't get us at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet all across the country. It's LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, all through the solar system, including the Milky Way. So uh, we bring in my good friend, John Carney, uh, economics and finance editor of uh, Breitbart and um, author of the Breitbart Business Digest Daily, must read. It's got a cult following. It's a fabulous thing. So, John, thank you, as always. Can I just talk to you? Um, put your political hat on along with your economic hat. The consumer confidence numbers took a big jump in January. Uh, and in December, they took a big jump. Two months, big, big jump. And you see it. Uh, overall, the sentiment index, current economic conditions way up, consumer expectations way up. I mean, November was 56.8, John. In January, it was 75.9. And then one-year inflation expectations down uh, from 4.5% in November to 2.9% in January. And then the longer-term inflation, 2.8%. Those are big numbers. And... Does that have a political impact or is it too soon? I think it has both a political impact and I think it has a political reflection. One of the things that's happening is that Republicans are actually becoming more positive about the economy. Mm. And I think this is because Republicans are becoming more convinced that they can win in November. So, in other words, you're seeing consumer sentiment buoyed by the fact that people are saying, 
I think Donald Trump's going to win in November. Is it? So this. No, I didn't. I'm sorry. No, no, that's a great point, John. I'm. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm ooing and eyeing because I hadn't thought of that. So that's what that's. That could be in those numbers. I think it is in those numbers. I think uh, that what we're seeing is that. Republicans who have been very negative about the economy, largely because it look, you know, Biden has mismanaged it so badly mm. that they're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Right, we are in the final year of the of Joe Biden's term as president, uh, and we are now more hopeful that he will not have a second term as president. And so, when you look at the year ahead inflation numbers or the year ahead. Uh, expectations for what's going to happen for business conditions, mm. people are becoming more hopeful. Now, there's also a bit the Democrats think uh, they could win it, too. So I think that they they also say, look mm. at these numbers and they say, oh, you know, we're that their spirits are buoyed as well. There's also a little bit of partisanship on the part of the Democrats as we get nearer to the election. The and there, this is in the numbers uh, can pretty consistently. If you ask people, you know, how is the how do you feel about the economy? There is a little bit of partisanship where if their party's running things, they tend to be a little bit more positive, uh, in part because they they understand mm. that uh, you know that that this has political implications, so they answer better, and people just tend to feel better when their party is running the you country. Should, but I do think that Republican hopes are boosting the consumer sentiment. You should write that up, John. That's a I real, definitely will. It's really it's insightful. Of a coming Breitbart business digest. Yeah, I mean, that's nobody else has said that. That's a fascinating take. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, the rest of the story, I mean, as you've been writing, uh, and we've talked about it on the show, uh, the numbers are coming in. There's really, with retail sales fairly strong, not manufacturing. You don't see it there. You don't see it in business equipment and so forth. But people are spending and they are borrowing, and there's really no reason for the Fed to lower their interest rate target. This, I mean, That's right. Usually when the Fed is lowering their interest rate, particularly usually when this happens, it, it is because we are facing uh, – we are seeing the beginning of a pretty severe economic downturn, and the Fed is trying to respond to that. That's not what the case is right now. Unemployment is ultra low, mm. and consumers are spending a lot of money. So if the Fed decides that it's going to cut rates, and uh, it's likely to not decide early because they're not they're not worried about something happening. It would be a cut of choice rather than a cut of necessity, uh, and they're unlikely to have a very rapid series of cuts. Usually, when the Fed is in a cutting cycle, it's because we are in a downturn right now. And Chris Waller, the Fed governor, um, pointed this out, that the Fed probably will not cut rapidly Mm. once it starts cutting because it's not trying to flood the economy with with liquidity to fend off a recession it's doing it because it thinks you know they're they're able to do it rather mm. than that they have to do it. Mm. Yeah, the um, I was just looking this morning, John, uh, in the futures market, the Fed rate cut in March 
is now down to only 48 percent. I think that's the right. It was up at 75 just a few days ago. So right. it has come down <laughs> a lot. I think for the reasons that I've been articulating, which is people look at the data and they say the, it, the, the, the very data that the Fed officials have told us they pay attention to a lot, which is the labor market data, mm. that's been strong, the, uh, um, the consumer data, and that's been strong. So you know, that takes away from the, the idea that they're going to cut in March. As you said, manufacturing seems to still be in a recession. It's unclear, though, that that will last. If we've been seeing a, a loosening of financial conditions, the you know not just treasuries, treasury yields have come down, gone up a little recently, but still pretty far down. But things like uh, high yield bonds, uh, they have come down a lot, and so and they've narrowed the gap uh, with treasuries. So what that's telling you is that businesses are more able to borrow. And if, and if financial conditions loosen for businesses, they will start to expand. They got tight for businesses. They're not as tight as they were. So I think we'll start to see uh, that uh, business investment starts to tick up again. Yeah, the, ju- the, the, junk, the junk bond spread. Uh, I'm looking at John Moody's. Uh, no, I'm looking at the Merrill Lynch high yield spread. Last 52 weeks is down 68 basis points. So you're right. I mean, yeah. that's come in quite a bit. That's a good economic indicator. Your other thing here, your business digest for today or last night, consumers are murdering the March rate cut. I, I love that. <laughs> Folks, you gotta, you gotta, you can go online and get this stuff. Uh, I mean, I'd charge a tons of money for it, but John Breitbart is such I give a, it away for free. Yeah, Breitbart is a great, news operation, including John's business digest. Consumers are murdering the March rate cut. And then you go on to talk about the rate cut got run over by a reindeer. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good, John. That's really good. Thanks. We try to make it fun. You know, one of the things, you know, um, we're writing about things like yield curves and, uh, and, you know, the market implied odds of fake Fed rate cuts. And that can get a little dry for people. So when we're writing this stuff up, try to, you know, provide the humor. But also that's also what happened, right, is that a lot of people thought, you know, oh, the holiday shopping season is not going to be strong. Consumers are going to pull back. Mm. And they didn't. So, yeah, the rate cut got run over by the reindeer. So we're just going to stay where we are, you know. And the Fed's still got more work to do to get their uh, hit their target rate for all the various inflation indicators. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, historically, uh, interest rates are no big deal. Um, I mean, the curve is inverted. So, you know, that's still a worry. There's always something to worry about. The curve is inverted. Short rates are higher than long rates. And that's unnatural. It's turning the treasury curve on its head. On the other hand, 10 years at 412, John, that's a nothing burger. I mean, historically speaking. Uh, So why not? And I think there's there's a lot of evidence that actually – the economy has moved into a state where it can tolerate, it can do well with higher interest rates than it could, say, five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, when we look at it, we say, well, that's a lot more than we had, you know, ever since the financial crisis. But 
it's okay. It is close to what was historically normal. It's not high, historically speaking. Hmm. And in places that are very sensitive to interest rates, like the housing market and the auto market, we've actually seen that those haven't fallen apart. That tells me that the economy can withstand hmm. interest rates at this level and even higher. I don't think the Fed is going to hike. I, I think they, they've made it clear they're not going to hike. I do think, though, that the long-term rates are probably going to move up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and we may see the uninversion of the yield curve because of that. Mm -hmm. I think that the Fed, that inflation has shown signs. It, it probably bottomed over the summer, and in October was probably the recent lows. It's going to be stuck at around where it is right now. And the Fed is – over time, it'll come down, but it's not. But it's not coming down at a place that tells you, okay, the Fed should start cutting now. There's no, there's nothing that says the economy can't handle the level of interest rates we have right now. So I'm looking at the uh, CPI report uh, for December, which is the latest one we have. Uh, the top line is 3.4 percent, 12 month change. So that's well above the Fed's target range, which is two. And then the core rate, excluding food and energy, is 3.9, so that's high. And then services are 5.0. Uh, that has labor costs in it, so that's above the Fed's target. What is the um, what is it? Jay Powell's supposed favorite rate? I don't. I can't follow all this stuff. <laughs> right. Well, they, you know, I'm always very wary of people who want to slice and dice yeah. the uh, inflation reports in ways that produce the outcome that they wanted to see anyway. Mm. Oh, you know, if you subtract this one and that one, that's not really probably a good measure. But what he loves to look at what he, he says, services, excluding housing services, and excluding energy services. Oh, for God's so, sake. So, <laughs> so it's a pretty slight something. But that's not showing a lot of disinflation right now. And I will say that if you, the, the the retail sales remember retail sales are sales of goods. Mm. Um, it's you know there's a little bit in there. Um, restaurant services are in there, but that's the only services mm. part of this. Mm. So when retail sales are coming in higher than expected, that creates inflationary pressures in goods, and that's been something that people thought was going to be a huge source of disinflationary pressure. That doesn't seem like that's a safe bet anymore. Mm. So we may not only be facing inflationary pressures from the services side, but the goods side may start to exert inflationary pressure again. The Fed guys are watching this. I mean, they are, they, you know, Waller is a very smart guy. Mm. Um, he was, has been very optimistic <laughs> that we were going to continue, that inflation was going to come down and the economy was going to slow. All right. When he was making speeches in October and December, that was true. That looked true. The data we got in for November and December since then mm. uh, tell us that it's no longer true, that the economy is now in danger of accelerating and inflation will follow and reignite. All right. I got to run. Uh, John Carney, Breitbart News, Economics and Finance, Breitbart Business Digest, co-author with Alex Marlowe. It's a fabulous thing, uh, John. Thank you ever so much. We appreciate it. Folks, quick break, and then uh, Cash Patel, former uh, chief of staff of the Defense Department, is going to tell us whether the Middle East is just blowing up left and right or what. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to talk. I need my I need my Cash Patel fix. That's what I need. The question before the House is: Is the Middle East region now just blowing up? Is it on fire? President Biden sitting on the sidelines. Pakistan attacking Iran. Of course, the Israel-Hamas war continues. The Bidens are still trying to pinch Israel back. Anyway, blah blah blah. I want to give him Cash Patel. He's former chief of staff of the Secretary of Defense, former senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council during the Trump administration. And he's the author of Government Gangsters, The Deep State, The Truth, and The Battle for Our Democracy. Thank you, Cash. And we'll hold you over, too, because I went too long with John Carney. Cash, how do you read uh, Pakistan bombing Iran, Iran bombing Iraq, the U.S. is bombing the Houthis, but not Iran. And the Israeli story, I mean, I guess Israel's pulling back strategically, or no, tactically, I'll say. But all I read about is a two-state solution, Palestine state, and they're still trying to uh, push Israel. The Bidens are still trying to push Israel back. So what do you think about this, Cash? What do you think about the whole story? Well, Larry, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. And oh. I think the only thing, you don't have to be a national security uh, subject matter person to realize the following. Everyone's bombing everyone. Mm. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Iran, thanks to Joe Biden, has nuclear-grade weapons material. Iran, thanks to Joe Biden, who gave him $6 billion to the world's largest state sponsor of terror, is now purchasing delivery systems from the CCP and Russia. So mm. they don't have to make them. Mm. They can just buy them. And whether you believe the propaganda that Iran and Pakistan hate each other or the Houthis and Saudis, etc., everybody's got weapons of war. Mm. Everybody's using weapons of war, and they're using them to attack the United States of America. And we got two dead special forces operators in the Red Sea operation last week because Joe Biden, Secretary Austin, are delivering the defense of this nation from their bedside. Mm. And it's all going the wrong way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Let's, the business about, okay, so the U.S. is hitting the Houthis. But mm-hmm. when, when you listen to this guy, John Kirby, he's acknowledged <laughs> that Iran is behind the Houthis. I mean, we know Hamas and Hezbollah. And yet, they don't, uh, the Bidens don't do anything to Iran. I mean, that's what caught my eye, Pakistan bombing Iran. Uh, I don't know all that that means, but you're right. It's not good. But the thing is, we're not steering this ship, are we? I mean, they're doing stuff. It's kind of helter-skelter. But it's like, what's what's the United States' role here? Or maybe I should ask you, what should the U.S. be doing? Well, simple, you know, Larry, in the Trump administration, when you and I were in the White House, we prioritized against our enemies. Our mm. biggest enemy is the largest state sponsor of terror, Iran. And we collected intelligence and executed operations against Iran and its allies, the Houthis, a terrorist organization. Hang on. Joe Biden won't even call them that. Cash, hold on. I don't mean to be rude. I, I got it. I'm up against a hard commercial break. Stay with us for a couple minutes and you can finish that thought and other thoughts on the other side of the break, okay? You got it. All right, Cash. You're great. You're a gentleman. You're a prince. I'm Cudlow, folks. More on Cash Patel to walk through the Middle East right after this short commercial break.
Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, Gentleman Prince Kash Patel stayed over. (laughs) Former Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense, former Senior Director of Counterterrorism at the National Security Council, all in the Trump presidency. And I want to promo his book, Government Gangsters, The Deep State, The Truth, and the Battle for Our Democracy. So just thinking about that, it's just the way you look at the title of your book, The Battle for Our Democracy. <laughs> the battle, you know, for Israel, Israel's democracy, the battle for Middle mm-hmm. East democracy. So you, yeah. you know what you said in the first one? Everyone's bombing everyone else. Now, that is a really important point because you don't want that. I mean, there's nothing no. good about that, right? And, but people aren't really talking about this cash. Yeah, when you bomb people, people die. Mm. Civilians die. You miss your targets. Babies and children die, just like when General Milley and President Biden drone struck Afghani children because they thought they were attacking a suicide bomber. Mm. They killed 13 American soldiers, and they lied about it. Mm. Propaganda comes out of these campaigns, and that inures to the benefit of our enemies, Iran. And when you have Biden in Austin and the tragic failure of the National Command Authority, when the Secretary of Defense lies to his commander-in-chief, our frontline soldiers are hurt, and they're put in jeopardy. And what's worse is our enemies take advantage of the situation and continue to strike us to the tune of 135 times. You wanted to talk about the importance of the Houthis. Mm-hmm. The Houthis are just as bad as Hezbollah and Hamas. They are Iran's mercenary force in Yemen, and now they are fully charged and ready to go and shutting down trade and cargo ships in the Red Sea, but most importantly, attacking American installations, and we're doing nothing. And it leads to what you just said. Everybody's bombing everybody. Well, that's your line. It's a very important line. You know, I had um, Congressman Waltz uh, from Florida. I forgot his first name. Very smart. Mike Mike Waltz. Uh, And I had, um, you know, the Israeli counterintelligence guy, uh, Saul Cohn. Yep. Now, now, both of them were very concerned, as you are. Uh, Saul, not so much about the Pakistan-Iran thing. But mm-hmm. I'm just listening to you, this idea of everybody bombing everybody else. And so what it, the United States is supposed to be the superpower. And we were the dominant. I mean, the Trump administration mm-hmm. changed the game in the Middle East. That's fair, isn't it? We isolated Iran. Yeah. We had the Abraham Accords. We backed Israel to the hill. Now, it looks like, Cash, not only is that all broken, but the United States has become a lesser player. That's my concern. No, you're right. Look, as, a, as an American, I'm cheering for Joe Biden to succeed on the national security front, and he's failing. Mm-hmm. Those leaders over there, our former quote-unquote allies, aren't even taking our phone calls. Mm. And what's worse, Russia and China are arming Iran because now they're flush with cash. And when we go back to the theme of this conversation about everybody bombing everybody, Larry, when it, people are talking about, oh, we're not at war, we're really not there, People are at war, and mm. it takes one errant bomb, one errant missile to cause the entire world mm. to go to war, just mm. like we did in the 40s. And that's what my fear is because, like you pointed out, America, the backstop for security in the world, is gone under Joe Biden. Unlike Donald Trump, when he made national security the priority, we wound out of three forever wars, and we neutralized all the terrorist threats in the Middle East. And, oh, by the way, they got the Middle East peace done. You know, that's the difference, and I think people are seeing it. Wow. Cash, you're just fabulous. i got I got to get you back on the TV show this week, and we'll walk through this stuff. This is eye-opening stuff. Folks, Cash Patel, and the name of his book is Government Gangsters, The Deep State, The Truth, and the Battle for Our Democracy. 
Uh, thank you ever so much, Cash Patel. Now, uh, we're going to roll right into our next guest, who is an old and dear friend, Chris Liddell, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff. And he was a chief financial officer for both Microsoft and General Motors. That ain't bad. I don't know if he sold a stock. If he owns a stock on Microsoft. Holy cow. Rich. rich. His new book is called Year Zero, The Five-Year Presidency. The release date is January 23rd, which I guess is Monday. My numbers are correct. I want to say that Chris Liddell served or I served with him in the White House. And he and his wonderful bride, Renee, are dear friends of Judy and me. So, Chris, um, first of all, I don't have the darn book. Someone got to send me the book, okay? Get one of your guys to send me the book. Um, I'm not going to give you the address over the radio, but I want to look at the book. Now, your point is the five-year presidency. As I understand it, you, you want us to hit the ground running, so you got to prepare a year before kind of a transition plus. Uh, and that may apply if if President Trump is reelected. That will certainly apply. Is that basically the thrust of this thing? Hey, Larry, how are you? Uh, well, look, firstly, can I just say the, before I address your question, it's a great honor to be on your show. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners appreciate how, how tough White House jobs are, but one of the real rewards is the incredible people you work with and, and go into battle with every day. And, and you, my friend, are at the absolute top of that list. So, mm, so thank, you. thank you for having me on. Thank you. And I will certainly get you a copy of the book. I mean, I'm a poor, starving, <laughs> impoverished TV host. You know, you got to send it to me. hundred <laughs> percent. So, look, having said that, Larry, the, the, the country's clearly in crisis. And, and I'm not sure you've seen the numbers, but more than 70% of people believe that the country's headed in the wrong direction. Uh, only 20% or so believe that the government will do the right thing to solve their problems. And in my view, is it's, it's time we did something about it. So my basic thesis is, is the best way to, to rebuild trust in our institutions is, is to make the government more effective. Mm. And that starts with the White House, which is uh, the most important institution of them all. And that's what my book's about. Mm. And I have a series of recommendations in it, and uh, we can talk a little bit about them if you like. But they start in, in what I describe as year zero, which is the year before governing. And uh, thank you for having me on today, because zero, zero starts at about 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's January 20th, 2025 huh. is huh. is one year and 20 minutes away from the inauguration. Ah, that's so. a great point. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So um, Year Zero is, is all, to your point, is all about the things that uh, a, a, an incoming president or a second-term president, for that matter, has to do to make the White House more effective. And my view from my combination of my private sector experience and my uh, public sector experience, which I, you mentioned I had a bit of both, uh, is we can make the White House in, in the first year 100% more effective. Mm. Not In the private sector, maybe you can get 10%. In the White House, it can be 100%. Mm. And, but you can only have that level of success if you have, in year one, if you do all the things that you need to do in year zero, because there's just so much to do. And the White House and the federal government have become so complicated that unless you, you plan for uh, governance, then it's just too hard once you get in. Chris, um, basically, so you, there, I mean, there is something called a transition. But as I hear you, and I know your views on a lot of this stuff, 
the transition shouldn't be, you know, after the votes are counted, uh, even though you have a couple months to inauguration, you're saying the transition should be a year long for both sides, whether you're Democrat or Republican. And you have to work, I think, you have to work through personnel and policies. Is both sides, is that what you're saying? Exactly. So between people think of the transition as, as between the election and the inauguration, a sort of 75 days or thereabouts uh, sprint uh, once you get elected. Uh, but it starts a lot earlier than that. And 75 days is just not long enough. Mm. It's just you've got to appoint several thousand people. You've got to get your policy lined up. Mm. You've got to build your teams. You've got to appoint your White House staff. There is just way too much to do, especially as uh, assuming you're an incoming president, you know, the whole world wants to talk to you. So you've got to start planning well ahead of that. Now, t- the tricky thing is obviously you have to campaign at the same time. Mm. So you have these two parallel paths. One is is the campaigning and obviously winning the election if you're competing for it. But alongside that is is the less well-known, less obvious, but equally important part, which is getting ready to govern. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you, you know, I'm a how guy. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you and I got on so well together. You're, you're a great what guy, what we should do. I'm a how guy, mm-hmm. how you should do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about getting ready. And it's no use. You can have all the best policies in the world, but if you don't have a plan to how to get them done and how to run the government, which is, as you know, incredibly complicated and the barriers to getting things done are enormous. Unless you have a plan for how you're going to do that, you can have all the what's in the world, but you're going to be ineffective. I mean, more or less, I don't want to go deep, but is it is the AFPI doing that, America First Policy Institute? Uh, are, they, are they like – it's not an official – I mean, it's a 501c3, so I have to be careful on this. It's not an arm of the Trump campaign, but they are doing some of those things, are they not? You're absolutely correct. AFPI is exactly doing that, and and I and the side have been helping them a little bit, but they've been doing an outstanding job and helping a possible candidate prepare. And what will happen is is once uh, a, a Republican candidate, if we take that, uh, is is nominated or, or clear it was going to be nominated, then they'll set up a transition of their own. Mm. And that transition will then benefit, if it wants to, from the work that America First Policy Institute has been oh, doing. Oh, got it. And the, great, and the great benefit of AFPI is they've been going more than just year zero. They've been going since the end of the last Trump administration. So, so they've done a huge amount of preliminary work, and, and Heritage, I'll mention as well, has done some work. And I imagine those two efforts will come together, but they'll come together under the banner of an official uh, campaign transition team. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, look, the AFPI, uh, I mean, I was there at the very beginning. I mean, the thing was hatched in my office. But the point I'm going to make is it's a 501c3. It was always available to any of the candidates. I mean, this obviously it's a conservative group, so Republican candidates. What's happened is, you know, because President Trump, former President Trump, has done so well, and, you know, it looks, you know, the, almost 100% he's going to be the nominee. That's where it's going to land. It'll be landing uh, in the Trump camp, et cetera, et cetera. And originally, 
it could have got you know could have helped DeSantis, could have helped Haley. They didn't call on us. I mean, it was I never understood that, Chris. Uh, but anyway, that's a sidelight. You know, one thing I want to say. Um, you know, time is short, but your uh, formal position in the White House, you were Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy or Policy Coordination. I don't remember what we called it. What do we call it? Policy Coordination. They should uh, they should institutionalize that because you did. I want to say this. You did a brilliant job uh, coordinating um, honest broker. And uh, funny, I I saw the NEC as an honest broker, too. But you and I work so closely together. And I go back to the trade meetings. You set up this trade committee. There was always disagreements on trade, you know, inside the principles. And those meetings which over which you presided on a regular basis and we produced policy recommendations for the president was absolutely brilliant, Chris Liddell. And so that's why I'm, yeah. I think that whole, you know, uh, I think they should institutionalize that, that spot. Yeah, Larry, I talk a lot about this in the book about how the president makes decisions and how he should make decisions. Uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the key things is to have that honest broker role, whether mm-hmm. it's in, in the NEC role like yourself or mm-hmm. the deputy chief of staff like myself. The president needs options, and he needs contestable options. Now, every president, if you look back in history, and I, again, I go in the book to talk about the history of the way that different presidents have made decisions. Some really like that contestability in front of them, and, and you recall President Trump loved that. Loved it. Loved it. One of the it. best meetings, meetings we had were you and uh, yeah. Pete Mnuchin yeah. and Bob Lighthouse. We were going at it. Thrashing it out in we front were thrashing it out. <laughs> no, but, but that's... And me try to me try to uh, try to like navigate it a little bit, should we say? Yes. Uh, so so that that process is incredibly important, and can be done well or can be done badly. But you've got to get the right options to a president for decision. And the other critical thing, Larry, and again, your your role and mine uh, address this is then you've got to implement them, mm. and that's something that a lot of White Houses are good at making decisions, but then nothing happens. Mm. And and you've got to have a process there afterwards right. and people responsible for not only getting the president the right options, but making sure his or her decisions are then carried out. Right. And and again, Chris, I got a bit kind of boring process stuff, but it's I'm no, this is uh, this is good stuff. Just to hear your voice. I miss you. I'm hoping you're going to come back into town soon uh, so we can get together. Uh, folks, Chris Liddell. Uh, former deputy chief of staff in the Trump administration. I mean, he ran two companies, CFO for two companies, Microsoft and GM, so he knows whereof he's speaking. He's a very dear friend. Anyway, the book is Year Zero, The Five-Year Presidency. Uh, It's out uh, Monday, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon One Click and all these other places. Christopher Liddell, thank you. Take care. All best to Renee. We'll talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk to monetarist economist, money supply economist, M2 economist Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins University. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Gudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. 
special treat, old friend Steve Hankey, professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University. Now, don't blame him for being a college professor. He's a good guy. I've known him a long time. All right. Steve Hankey, welcome to the show. Uh, We're going to talk about the money supply. Our listeners know about the M2 money supply, et cetera. Here's, and of course, I still follow your work. You send me these things and I read them. Uh, M2 soars in 2020 and 2021. And sure enough, uh, a year or two later, inflation soars. Boom. Fed comes in, they start tightening. I'm just doing this so we can speed up the interview. Fed comes in, starts tightening bank reserves. They start raising interest rates, et cetera. And the money supply uh, goes down, goes down, 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 and hits minus territory year on year, where I believe it still is. Now, two things, Steve. One is, yes, the inflation rate came down, as you and monetarists predicted. And by the way, you know, I talk about the money supply on my TV show all the time. Carl Brunner was my professor, for heaven's sakes, at the University of Rochester. So I know all about it. But what hasn't happened, Steve Hankey, and this is what I wanted to focus on, the economy has not fallen into recession. You would think with a collapse in M2, uh, I mean, it was like plus 20 percent. Now it's about minus 2, 3, 4 percent. You would expect uh, nominal GDP and the rest of the economy to crash, and it hasn't happened. So I'm very interested, and we, time is always short, why hasn't it happened? What are you thinking here? Okay, the, the, there, there are two aspects of it. One is that the pump-up in the money supply was so massive that there was a huge excess of cash balances that was in, that, that were in the system, and those have been those have essentially been run off now. So the the usual lag we get between sustained changes in the money supply and changes in economic activity were drug out a little longer than normal. But now the second – so that's point one. Mm-hmm. Point two, Larry, is that we have had a, a contraction in the money supply of 4.5% since March of 2022. That's almost unprecedented. You have to go back to 1929, 1933 to find that kind of contraction. And, and in fact, there have only been four contractions in the history of the United States under the Fed hmm. since 1913, and all of those have resulted in recessions. Mm-hmm. All have resulted in, and, and and therefore, there's a lag between this contraction and the oncoming recession. But as they say, we know it's baked in the cake because the recessions come a long time after the changes occur in the money supply. And in this time, it's been drug out to the, to the longest edge mm. of, the, of, of the lag, simply because there was such a massive increase that it, we, we were increasing the money supply. It peaked at 27% per year over year in February of 2021. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's about four and a half times higher than it should have been cranking away at if the Fed was going to hit a two percent inflation target. And so, now, now the and where's where's M two now? It's minus something. Yeah, M two is minus three point one. Yeah. Okay. So, Steve Hankey, um, what's the what in the forecasting game? What's the time horizon? I mean, 
where there's no evidence of a slowdown. I mean, that's not true. Let me take that back. There is evidence of some slow. I mean, manufacturing's been in a slump for over a year. Uh, I just got a minute to go, but when would you think these recession signals okay. would hit? You, you, you've been in this business a, a long time, and you know it, it's impossible to put your finger on exactly what month or more what or less, month. more or less, more, more or less the the second half of 2024. Right. This really is baked in the right. cake. I agree with that, by the way. I mean, we're, I'm we're, I'm tracking that too. And we're kind of we're we're basically sleepwalking into this because the press is very biased and they're trying to pump up. It's good. It's good. It's right. good. Why is it good? Because they have an incumbent in the White House. <laughs> I got it. All right. Steve Hankey, Johns Hopkins, monetarist. I think he's got very important points, uh, kids. I know people don't think there's a recession coming, but there are lags and the money supply was out of control. I'm Cudlow. We talk stocks, stock market after this. It's the Larry Cudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Cudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Cudlow. Great to be with you. Hour number three. By the way, during the week, please join us on television, Fox Business Network, FBN. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And uh, here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. Is that right? LarryCudlowShow.com. That's all you have to do. Run all around the country, throughout the world, all the solar system and the Milky Way. All right. We're going to look at the stock market. Big rally yesterday, up almost 400 points. So the early year to date, the S&P 500 is up 1.5%. The NASDAQ up 2%. The Dow up one half of 1%. Yesterday was the big day, and the week was up too. So let's bring in our two distinguished guests, John Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, and Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, both old friends and very, very smart people. Uh, John, start with you. Um, we reported, our Jerry Willis reported yesterday on the big rally, and it just seemed like the theme, and it's a familiar theme, was um, advanced technology, AI applications. NVIDIA was leading the way as it has been, and it's given the market a positive tone. Is that what's going on, or are there other things happening? Tell us about it, John and Jerry. Well, and I'm pretty sure our friend Jim is going to agree that uh, a lot of the last two months of 2023, Larry, were uh, driven by the, the idea that the Fed wasn't going to move rates any higher and, in fact, was going to cut rates pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, that Those hopes sort of faded in the first few weeks of January, reality or whatever, set in, and people began looking at some of the other numbers that were coming in with inflation still running at 3.3 or 3.4 percent, and they were thinking, maybe we're not going to get that cut in March or April. Uh, that the market had been thinking about. So in other words, if I, I was just over here in uh, Spain skiing, Larry, mm. and 
if you get out too far over your skis, you'll start tumbling. (laughs) And obviously, the market didn't really tumble, but it did take a little bit of a hit in those first few weeks. And now uh, I think there's more optimism for tech yet again, to your point, and for the market to perhaps, if not see uh, cuts immediately in the first quarter, very early in the second quarter. So, Jim Urio, um, all right, so I'll add the, the I mean, the Fed story, one would think, and interest rates are creeping up again. Let's see, uh, the 10-year was up 18 basis points this past week. Uh, the short-term rate, the two-year note was up 24 basis points, uh, not the three-month bill because the Fed funds rate is not moving. So one one might say, well, you know, rates going up, stocks should go down, but that's not happening. So th- that's why I put in the uh, AI and the technology and all that. Um, but I don't think the Fed's going to ease uh, for months and months and months. I mean, in fact, I'll go so far as to say right now there's no reason – for the Fed to ease at all in the foreseeable future, unless they want to jerry-rig, you know, throw a lot of juice into the economy to reelect Biden. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. So I, I'm falling back on the technology story. But how do you see this market, Jim? No, I, so this is confusing because I'm, as you guys both know, for the last 25 years, I think the most the primary driver of equity prices is the Fed and the cost of money. And but in the last, like you said, the last two weeks, just from January twelfth, we were pricing in 170 basis points of easing in 2024. Mm. And that's now gone to 137. But the pricing the pricing in the smart money in the Fed funds market has been wrong for two years. Mm. I think the story in stocks is threefold. You mentioned the fact that AI still has everybody excited and they're jumping into the tech companies. The Magnificent Seven is clearly driving everything. John mentioned Fed expectations too. But the third thing that if you just all it takes is a quick like math look at the M2 money supply. And if you just if we stayed on the trajectory of M2 increases that began in the great financial crisis and then uh, went through February of 2020, we would if we just stayed at that ridiculously high M2 money growth, we'd be at like 18.8 trillion now. And we still after Growing money, growing the M2 26% year over year through the uh, COVID mitigation strategy, whatever you want to call it, we still have an extra $2.2 trillion that's sloshing around in the system that's ending up in equities. And I think that's something that's, uh, that is a little bit underreported, although, you know, I mean, it's not any sort of rocket science. But the, the reality of it is, is that, yeah, those, those, the stock market did rally and go to all-time highs even though rates were going higher over the last couple of weeks, and that's causing me to rethink some things. And then you go back to your technical analysis. If we can see a, another solid rally in the S&P uh, next week, I'm thinking we're, you know, there's some, some blue skies ahead, and I'm not exactly sure why. You know, just on that point, it's uh, funny, on the money supply, the M2 money supply, uh, I just had, before you guys, Steve Hankey, professor at Johns Hopkins uh, a devout mon- uh, monetarist. So we talked about this specifically. Um, so M2 skyrocketing in 20 and 21. The Fed comes in and tightens, pulls out cash like crazy. Uh, and the inflation rate is falling. All right. It's fe- falling quite a lot, more or less from nine to about three and a half percent, as John suggested. Uh, okay. So I asked Hanky, 
normally, because uh, I was trained as a mantrist in college. Carl Brunner was my professor. He was a famous mantrist. Um, uh, where's the recession? You would expect a recession, and the recession's not happening. In fact, numbers coming in so much stronger than people anticipated. So Hanky said, and I'll get you guys to chew on this. Hanky said, hang on, the lags are longer because the increase in money was so much greater than normal. And now the pullback, the lags are longer. And he's looking for a second half recession. That's what he's saying. Now, that would be very bad for stocks. It'll crush earnings and so forth and so on. So, John, I want you to both chew on this. Is it possible that with the euphoria about the recent numbers, retail sales were strong, consumer confidence was strong, the third quarter was up 5%, the fourth quarter probably come in, I don't know, 2%, 2.5%. Are people um, ignoring the recession threat? Take a whack at it, John. Hello. Is Is he gone? Uh, this is like my dream come true. Then I just get to talk myself the whole time. You, right? can, you can talk forever, Jim Yorio. Uh <laughs> You know how I love to talk forever. <laughs> and you're very good I at think, it. I think Steve Anke is right. Uh, but I think, like, it's just a mean reversion. Like, you can say, okay, M2 uh, broke 4.6% from its highs. And the other four times it's even broke Thank over you, 2%. Are you back, John? Yeah, he's back. But go yes, ahead. Sir. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, no, I'll let John take two on it. I got, but I, this is my guess. I have some thoughts on it. No, uh, John, I don't know what if you heard. We had Steve Hankey on the show, distinguished monetarist professor at the Johns Hopkins University. And his point was um, the recession risk is the second half of 24. That was his estimate. Hankey's a very smart guy. Uh, so are we asleep at the switch and that there is still a significant recession threat, and that would mean the stock market is overvalued by quite a bit, if if that's true. So how do you see it, John? Well, and I, I, I tend to agree with you and Jim as far as the, uh, the idea that we are likely, Larry, to uh, be overconfident in the Fed willing to cut rates. I, I'm agreeing with you both that I think that's an overconfidence in the market, and any time we lean too far um, with the the herd, if you will, saying that we're going to see rate cuts, if we don't and they're surprised by that, I think it's a big negative. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the market can start correcting even before a recession comes to pass. But I'd, I'd say right now we're still in a decent spot for the economy. But when you listen to the reports that people have given – for their earnings, there are very few firms that are posting earnings that are better than they were a year ago. They mm. may beat lowered expectations, but most of them have complained that they are not seeing growth out there. And that's everybody from healthcare care uh, to uh, even some of the minor tech stocks, not the giants, not Microsoft and Apple, not NVIDIA, but a lot of the others have said that their customers are just not buying as much and are putting off big purchases. Is What did NVIDIA, NVIDIA say about earnings? Um, well, they continue to say that even with China, and they can kind of use that, I guess, as a little bit of a, uh, a buffer because the U.S. cutting off shipments to China mm-hmm. um, of their highest-end chips, 
um, they can kind of uh, still get around that by saying, look, but demand around the world still outstrips what we can produce. And like you always say, um, supply and demand still works. That is what still drives markets. Mm. Uh, The demand is much stronger than the supply that they can meet. Mm. Um, Let's take a break. I know Jim wants to jump back in on this. Uh, I've only got a minute left, so take a break. We've got John Najarian uh, of Market Rebellion and Jim Urio, TJM Institution Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. We're going to talk about that, too. I'm Kudlow. We're talking stocks, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks. With two of the best of the best, John Najarian is the co-founder of Market Rebellion. I think he's coming to us from Spain or someplace. And Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. Jim Urio, uh, you were going to chime in about the money supply and a second-half recession threat, which seems to be off the table, but maybe it shouldn't be. It's not, yeah, it's not off my table. So people look at the contraction that we saw in M2 money supply, the 4.6% when they started to uh, tighten rates, and everyone was like, anytime it's retract, it's come back more than 2%, it's been associated with a depression. It's been four different times in history. But this is just – this is the mean reversion. You have to look at that 4.6% decrease against the 26% increase that preceded it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's going to be a lag effect. But the one thing that's interesting in money supply, it hasn't really been – over the last six months, it hasn't really been collapsing as much as it has. But as far as the recession question goes, so what's kept us from going into recession is very, very interesting to me. It's M2 money supply. It's the labor market didn't crack because we come across, uh, come from a, p- a period of labor shortages, so companies were very reluctant to shed jobs early in this. Then couple that with the explosion in government jobs, so that part of it has appeared stable. I think that's relatively unsustainable. When we look at the numbers that have just come out, credit card debt has exploded. It didn't in Q4 of 2023, and which would be fine if it was just reflective of a great economy, but credit card delinquencies are are heading up quickly as well too same with same with car loan delinquencies as well so i don't think things look as good as uh, the numbers suggest mm. i think a lot of that is government spending well and also to your point uh if you look carefully at the supply side of the economy which is manufacturing the production of goods um that thing is very weak uh manufacturing production has been falling for quite some time over a year we had some terrible reports uh, the Empire State Manufacturing Index completely tanked, the worst in its history except COVID. And I think the other one was Philly Fed. That was also very weak. So you've got lingering consumer demand. Holiday season was pretty good. So that's demand side, but we're not getting the goods out. And eventually that's going to raise inflation and slow the economy. But for the moment, everyone is happy. John and Jerry, uh, you know, one of the other things that I always say down through the years, profits are the mother's milk of stocks. So I was kind of interested in your earnings uh, conjecture because you're saying most of these companies are not showing big earnings. Uh, in fact, it's weaker. And in cases, they may have beat expectations, but expectations had been lowered. So is there a way to summarize the earnings and profits picture? Because that's going to be a big factor on stocks. Well, I, I don't think we need to look further, Larry, than the uh, the job cuts again at Google, the mm. job cuts again at Meta, 
I mean, these are companies that most of us would put in a category of, if not too big to fail, certainly, uh, I mean, shoot, Meta has 330,000 of those NVIDIA uh, devices that mm. are working to make their AI work, mm. both FAIR and the other AI that they are uh, working on. And yet, uh, a lot of people are being laid off of, from both of those two companies, mm. and I suspect we're going to see hear the same from Apple in the not-too-distant future. Some of those jobs are taken by technology itself, perhaps even by AI, mm. but an awful lot of those jobs, I think, are just people that will be pushed back into the workforce um, into lower-paying jobs uh, because there's not that same chase that there was during the pandemic to sign up as many of these techies as you could get. Mm. So I think if those tech jobs start paying less, we're going to also feel that. And then you throw in some of these Houthi rebels and what's going on in the Red Sea and so forth, and ships avoiding going through the Suez Canal. Um, a lot of this will impact uh, numbers well into the second and hopefully not into the third quarter, but into the second quarter for sure, mm. because of the time lag that it takes to get those ships around the world the other way. Yeah, it's in, yeah. You know, Jim Urio, one other point to be worried about. It's always something to be worried about. The China story, which John mentioned, um, China's, for them, it's a recession, deflation. Uh, my own view is, I don't care what they do, their system is just broken down. It's They're, they're back to state-run economy. The market reforms have been over for years, and Xi Jinping uh, doesn't believe in any of that stuff anyway. Uh, so what's it? China deflation, is that an issue? Sure. Well, it was always going to happen, like you said, once they started to move away from market economy. I mean, we, we've seen it. There's a mountain of history that shows how that ends. So the question is, is it ending right now? And I'm not, I'm not ready to say that this is the, the end of, of China, and I am long copper in, a hope, in hopes that they are just going to eventually start throwing so much money at the problem they will get, will get another pop from them. Mm. Um, I'm, also, I'm not even that sure that copper is all that inextricably linked to uh, China demand anymore. But to, to, for me to call the end of it, and again, it, it's so funny. Like I think because the data that comes out of China, the economic data, is so wildly unpredictable and, and shows very little of what's really happening there. It's almost starting – I mean our, our data is starting to be the same. But I, So you're never really sure what's real and what isn't. So you just have to look at demand for things. And demand for things globally has you know, been okay in a commodity space. So that suggests to me that they're not completely falling apart yet, but mm-hmm. I think it would be premature to call it, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um I think that there are a lot of crosswinds right now is what I think. Pluses and minuses. Very tricky situation. Gentlemen, thank you. John Najarian of Market Rebellion. Jim Urio, TJM of Institutional Services. Two old pros trying to work through it like me. I'm Kudlow, folks. We're going to take a quick break, and then we got money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. Please stick around. Thank you. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're going to do some money in politics. We've got Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, 
We've got Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, same stations. Uh, welcome, kids. So I got a text message from my dear friend Sandra Smith, who was a fabulous Fox uh, News host. And Axios is running a story called The Biden Bounce. Yeah, All I right. saw that. And <laughs> There's three. I tweeted about it. I can't believe oh, this. That's all right. so funny. This is great. It's a small it's a very small world, Liz. Only about 40, <laughs> 40 or fifty people matter in the world. Anyway, uh three items. Uh don't underestimate the point is don't underestimate Joe Biden's reelection chances. The three items are sinking inflation, record stocks, and a big rebound in consumer confidence, consumer sentiment. All right. So, Liz Peake, let's start with you since you were on this story on the on the, on the Twitter machine. Um, I mean, they make a point. There's a lot of good news there uh, if you're in the Biden camp. Yeah, no question. I, I just thought it was funny because I immediately went and saw if any of this had had any impact on Joe Biden's approval ratings, and the answer is no, it hasn't. <laughs> so where's the bounce? I mean, may, and – All right. So on the stock market, uh, you know, yeah, admittedly, the stock market has gone up, oddly enough. And and sort of ironically, Joe Biden has always dismissed the stock market Mm -hmm. uh, as any kind of register of anything important, completely ignoring the fact that most Americans, a majority of Americans own stocks. So naturally, that leads to better consumer sentiment. But even Axios had to admit in that article that consumer sentiment is not back to where it was under President Trump. And if you look at those numbers, it's pretty stunning that never has Joe Biden been able to summon up the kind of uh, consumer sentiment or positivity that Trump did from day one. So, And that's kind of interesting because, after all, uh, Trump's presidency obviously went through some pretty dire times. So, uh, yes, uh, there, there have been some good news items that undoubtedly will help uh, Biden in the months ahead. The question is, are they enduring? Is this something that's going to really uh, redound to his benefit? We'll see. You know, that's an interesting, very good point, uh, Liz. Um, let's see. I'm looking at the chart that the Axios shows. So it has bounced up to 78.8 on their index, but it was around 100 uh, going back, it looks like around the year 2000. But it has it hits a hundred again in the Trump years. Yep. Look, it looks like. Sorry, what, what index are you talking about? This is the University of Michigan index of consumer, oh, consumer sentiment. sentiment. Okay, got it. And it, it's it's really bouncing. It's right at a hundred during the Trump years. Okay, so it bounces back from the financial meltdown. So Liz makes a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked uh, Steve. I want you to weigh in, but let, one more point. Um, John Carney of Breitbart, very uh, clever chap. And I asked him about this, and this is before I saw the Axios article or before Sandra uh, uh, texted me, but he's, he made an interesting point. He said one reason consumer confidence is doing so well is a whole bunch of Republicans believe Trump's going to win. Yeah, right. right? They, so they have more enthusiasm. Uh, now, Trump himself has said the stock market's doing well because he's going to win. Yeah. It's a little, it's, a, it's yeah. kind of a long lead on that one, but. The consumer sentiment, I mean, but and then, but then again, maybe Democrats think Biden's going to win. I don't know. 
Anyway, what do you make of this, Steve? The Biden bounce. Yeah. So a few things. I mean, the economy is clearly doing a lot, lot better than it was a year and a half ago. No question about it. Inflation's down a lot. And the stock market is, you know, in a bull market. That's a good thing. Although it's not, you know, if you adjust for inflation, as Art Laffer always taught us, you have to you have to adjust the stock returns for inflation. Mm. It's pretty flat, really, uh, from when he came into office. Mm. Um, so here's the thing that I think the big story here is that um, – Two things really have happened since the beginning of the year. It's much, much more likely that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, and it's much, much more likely that Biden is going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Republican, that's a good thing. As, as I wrote in the hotline this week, Biden is the second worst candidate they could possibly run. The only worst candidate would be Kamala Harris. <laughs> and so for, it's it's good it's good news for Republicans. Like if you had asked me to – we talked about this a few months ago on the, on, on this show – and I, I thought it was very likely. I would have put the odds at 80 percent that they were going to drop, uh, you know, uh, throw uh, Biden off the side of the train. Now I think they're tethered to him and he's a horrible candidate. I mean, like, let me put it like this. Is there anyone in America? Truly, is there anybody in America who really wants Joe Biden to be president for four more years? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know anybody who besides does. Mrs. No, they, besides Mrs. Biden. <laughs> she's the most important. Oh, yeah. So Hunter, the, right. So, look, if the economy is better and, and if it continues like this, it will be tough for Trump to win. But um, they're stuck with this guy now, although they could still uh, drop him over the uh, side of the bus. But I think it's looking less likely. And I, look, I think there's a Trump-Biden rematch. I I like Trump. One other quick thing, if I may. I, his speech on Monday Larry was terrific, mm-hmm. terrific yes. speech. Yes. He was magnanimous. Yes. He, he wasn't name-calling. He said nice things about Ron DeSantis. He said nice things about Nikki Haley uh, at, at one point. Then <laughs> he said something mean about her. But, you know, I, I love that uh, Trump. You know, there's always there's a good Trump and a bad Trump. And when the tr- Trump is good, he's really good. And he was optimistic. He wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, talking mm-hmm. about 2020 election. People are sick of talking about that. He was talking about a better America. So, I think he's got his game face on, and, and I think the events of the last few weeks have probably been a positive for Trump and the Republicans. Listen, I've said basically for the past year that Trump has done so well in the polls and now the votes uh, because he's running on issues. Yes. He's running on issues as he did in 2016. He's not running on grievances. Right. And he has taken the advice – Steve, of all of us, including yourself and, you know, Brookie Rollins and a whole lot of people. Stay on the issues. you got a big advantage. Uh, Can I just say one thing? His speechwriters wrote a great speech for him, and it was excellent. Those guys are fantastic. That's uh, Vince Haley and uh, Russ. uh, What's Russ's last name? By the way, both those guys were Gingrich speechwriters. I know. Interesting. Liz, one other point I want to make uh, on the Trump comeback and and his uh, good speeches. Um. Talking about unity in the Republican yeah. Party, which is a good thing, but he also in New Hampshire, and he did this on Sean Hannity's show the other night. He's talking about unity for the entire country. Yeah, you know? and that, that is a wonderful actually, theme, a wonderful yeah, for the whole theme. country. Don't don't forget, Larry. That's what Joe Biden ran yes, on. Yes, yes. Right? And yes. and the, he, the reason he did is I don't think there's American alive who doesn't think our country is 
really harmfully polarized, and that's not healthy for our country, mm-hmm. and it would be great to have some unifying theme. I, I think a number of things have happened in the past few days that are notable about Donald Trump. First of all, the New York Times put out, what was it, 1,300 words warning people <laughs> how what a danger Donald right. Trump was. And as you right. read it and then read sort of subsequent mini-me establishment media pieces of the same ilk – One of the things they're really worried about, which really tickles me, is that he's so better prepared this time. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people (laughs) – and remember how aghast everyone was that he wasn't prepared Mm -hmm. the last time. So now one of the big knocks against him, according to the Financial Times, The Economist, et cetera, is because he's getting his ducks in a row. And by the way, that showed up – also in his campaign. So it's, I mean, I I gather his campaign was much more organized, much better uh, sort of scoped out in Iowa, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the whole effort, the campaign and the preparation for a victory and possible victory in November is much better uh, organized. And I think people should be cheered by that. This is a professional now mm. who's getting his ducks in a row. And, uh, and you know, the Heritage well, Foundation and others are helping. He's got, with... uh, he's got Susie Wiles, She's great. Who, who was a DeSantis person, uh, ironically enough, mm-hmm. until he kicked her out. And the other one, Steve, uh, Las Civitas, I don't remember his name. Anyway, he has the best ground game now that he he's yeah. ever had. And he's got great speechwriters, and he's on the issues. Uh, and I just want to say one other point. This idea that success, is, I, I, I paraphrase by saying success is the best revenge. You don't have to have retribution. Right. He said, I'm too busy to succeed. So that his policies can restore the prosperity and the border and the foreign policy. Success is a unifying thing. You know, Liz, did you see the – you were mentioning the Times, the Brett Stevens? Yeah. Phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal piece, phenomenal I, piece. I thought it was terrific, and it made – no matter what Brett says to sort of excuse him running it, the truth is it made a great case for Donald yes. Trump. And I think yes. I think that's why the Times felt compelled to write <laughs> this huge rebuttal on, by their editors because, remember, all those young woke people working at the New York Times – when Tom Cotton ran an article, wrote wrote an article, and they published it, they all threatened to walk out. I mean, mm-hmm. it was bloodbath at the New York Times, and their editor actually had to resign. So I think the <laughs> Times editorial board looked at Brett Stevens' piece, and there was another one also vaguely positive on Trump and said, oh, boy, we're going to have trouble, so we're going to put out this College rebuttal. kids. College-educated yeah. college kids yeah. might be for Trump. That was another Times piece. <laughs> I love that, that the Times is more for Trump than the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> by the way, you have, to, you have to add to this then, um, you know, the, the great, uh, you know, uh, segment uh, with Jamie Dimon. Where, yeah. You know, Jamie Dimon is not a Trump fan, but he no. said, hey, you know, you got to admit, he's been right about immigration. He was right on taxes. He was right on the, well, Jamie, you know, building the wall. Jamie puts his finger to the wind. You know, I love He does, guy. but 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 actually, you know, the, uh, back to Brett Stevens, as you know, I worked with Brett yeah. for six or seven years at the Wall Street Journal. And I know, Despite, Brett, I know Brett. Yeah, and, and, and Brett, uh, people have to know, Brett despises Trump. He yeah. despises Trump, yeah. and yet what he was saying was just simple truths yes. in that p- column. Yeah. He was just saying, hey, you know, <laughs> Wake up, America. Eighty five million Americans love Trump. So something's going on. When is the when is our dear friend and I love him to death, 
Paul Jago at the Journal going <laughs> to no, start writing something. That's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, the Journal, the Journal has just become on. the biggest anti-Trump nag I've ever seen. They are. They, Every they little, are. I mean, and by the by, inaccurate stuff, unfair yeah. stuff. Uh, well, let me give you an example. Larry, gee whiz, Steve. You know, uh, yeah. you no, and I, I, you worked I there know. for years. I, I was know. on the editorial page for years. I, and we I love know. Paul Jago. We love I him. Know. I mean, he's a wonderful human being. What is up with this? It's like it's <laughs> well, enough just, already. Yeah, he just he just really doesn't like Trump. But I but like they have a column today, uh, editorial, which mm. I thought was just wrong. You yes. know, I talked to Paul once a week, and yes. he was like, "Oh, what Trump saying? You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't cut Social Security." No. Well, come on, that's cra- yeah. it's ridiculous for Republicans to talk about cutting Social Security just as a political matter. That's mm. that's falling right into the Democratic trap. Yeah. And so uh, I think he's being, uh, you know, blamed for th- I think he's running a smart campaign right yes. now. It's smart. Yes, he is smart. All right. Let's take a break. I want to come back to the Social Security issue and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, we're talking to Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, FreedomWorks. Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, which is one of the just absolute best political economic uh, dailies you can get. And Steve's WABC radio host. It's called More Money. After this show, on most of these same stations, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and uh, most importantly, WABC radio host for his show, More Money, which comes on on this uh, on most of these same stations right after our show. All right, both of you are going to disagree with me probably <laughs> vehemently and violently on what I'm about to say, but it's going to be fun. Uh, I notice uh, in one of these budget deals, they've created a fiscal commission, and um, everyone's touting it. I, I see it. I get all the emails from uh, Jody Arrington and others. He's the budget chief for the House. And I just want to say, and I want to have this discussion, I'd, I am opposed to a fiscal commission because it's a gigantic tax hike trap. It's going to be just like Simpson Bowles. They say it's bipartisan, but it's not. It's going to move to the left, and they're going to go for tax hikes, and it's a terrible idea, particularly in the current political situation. I do favor, now here's my out, my exit ramp. I do favor a social security commission, which is what Ronald Reagan did when I was a young toddler and worked for him 40 something years ago, which was bipartisan and came out with a very good product, but it was limited to social security. Greenspan ran it. Uh, they had Pat Moynihan and Lane Kirkland and all these people. But I'm going to tell you, Steve, a fiscal commission is a license to raise taxes. You wait and see. 
So you you got it half right, Larry. Half right. Not bad. So <laughs> not bad. Uh, you you are you are right about a fiscal commission. We should just call it the tax increase commission. Yes. Oh, uh, good. It, you it, buy it. it, right? Yeah. No, you're exactly right. That's a terrible idea. Every time we've had these, you know, fiscal commissions, they always re- recommend tax increases. By the way, the most important thing to bring the debt and deficit down, by far, the m- most overriding factor is getting the economic growth rate yes. up. And you're not you're yes. not going to get the economic growth rate up by by raising taxes. Yes. So you're a Hundred percent on that, right on that, and you're hundred percent wrong about what happened in 1983 with Reagan. That was a terrible deal, you know, Larry. What we did in 1983 was raise the the payroll tax, which was a terrible thing to do. It actually reduced growth. They actually. And I don't. I don't, don't want to look. The solution to Social Security is very simple. It has to be converted into a 401k type of plan where people, young people are putting their money into a private account and let them become investors in America. Well, so, I agree. You know I agree with that. I know you, you do. Know okay. So so but, I mostly agree with you, but, but I, the, I didn't like what we did. The Greenspan Commission, uh, I thought, by the way, the only payroll tax, wasn't that the one where they – had state and local workers. Oh, they did that. Yes, yes, yes you're right. That really right. wasn't. It re- okay, all right. I mean, we had eight percent. I'm gonna have to look. I'm gonna have to go back and look at the details of that one. It was pretty good, but look at the deal lasted fifty years. I mean, it's still going. So we should look at the details. But I'm just saying. Liz- a, can I just say one quick thing? The so, the, the journal had terrible editorial today on yeah. this. That Republicans yeah. should be talking about cutting Social Security benefits. Oh, I mean, no, my God, no, terrible, no, no, terrible. No, no, no. Next thing they're going to endorse Biden. You'll see. That's coming. <laughs> but oh, Liz, Liz I, 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 you may not agree with me, but I'm I'm telling you, I I I love the Simpson Bowles Commission. I mean, the first meeting in the first 10 minutes, they were raising taxes. And in those days, I was a CNBC host. I had both Al Simpson on the show. I had Erskine Bowles. I like Erskine Bowles very much. He was a conservative Democrat from Mm -hmm. North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't even get past pouring the coffee at the first meeting (laughs) before they started hiking taxes. And that's where these things always go. I, I thought the Simpson-Bowles suggestions, with all due respect, were actually pretty good and pretty reasonable. <laughs> I, I knew it. I knew and, it. And they were totally ignored by Barack Obama, uh, who didn't even have the courtesy to be there when they unveiled it, never right. talked to them about it. I mean, I've talked to Alan Simpson in the afterwards. I mean, he was just furious, and I don't blame him. They put a lot of time and effort into that. As to the Social Security fix, I am a total convert to your idea, Steve, I think, of private accounts and letting the stock market basically help people retire. What they will do, Larry, I think if they focus entirely on Social Security, the conversation will be all about limiting benefits, uh, you know, raising the retirement age. Yes, I think Nikki Haley's right about that for young people. But otherwise, it's going to be increasing the amount of money that people over so it'll be income adjusted and yada yada yes. i mean there there will be no accommodation to the fact that yes our country our economy is reflected in the growth of stocks and over time that is what will bail everything out by the way that it wasn't steve's sort of idea line. it was my idea <laughs> okay. Actually, it was right. to be. Uh, hey, let I me just clarify this. As it was actually Steve Forbes' idea. He ran yeah. for president on yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. It, was, you're right. Steve Forbes got there first, of course, by the media. Larry, I want to just give a shout out to Steve's uh, committee on, on to unleash Pro- prosperity on this 
issue of elites versus other people oh, and their you. attitudes. Yeah. I think it was riveting, the polling that they did. I think Kim Strasselrant wrote a great piece about that. It explains so much. It and does. I think when you look at Davos, it's an interesting thing to notice. One, American businessmen were perfectly okay with a Trump reelection. That was the feedback from CNBC, The Economist, everybody who wow. was there said international business people weren't so happy about this, but Americans were okay. Wow. Why would that be? Crushed because Davos. America first. Crush, Trump puts America first Davos. and it helped our country. <laughs> oh, God. End Davos. End Davos. Well, so no. much as bad as it ran. <laughs> All right, we got to go. Liz Peek and Steve Moore, fabulous. Folks, stick around for Steve Moore's More Money coming up on almost all these same stations. I'm Larry Cutlaw. We'll be back next weekend.